Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Six years ago, a little over six years ago, when we started this church and it was just a few of us, um, one of the first questions that people asked me when I would just see them around town or you go to these little meetings where pastors go to, they would always ask, this is just kind of church speak, you know, they, what's your vision? And I never really had a good answer for that question because I always felt a little queasy about that because generally, I think what that meant, although people intended it in a good way, was, you know, what's your, what's your church growth plan to get big? And it, it was kind of more informed by sort of American corporate marketing than it was by the Bible. And so I'd always kind of muddle through, I don't know, we're just, uh, finally I just sort of centered on the fact I'm going to open up the Bible and talk about Jesus and hope some people come and, you know, grow in Christ. And it really hadn't changed much in six years. That's basically my answer. But I think that what we've centered on these fast, past few years is, is for us to look at three questions, three words, and then three questions that drive those words. And those three words that really form the, the heart and the philosophy of ministry here at Crosspoint are gospel, community, and mission. And those three words come from three different questions, and that is going to form our outline this morning. The first question is, very simply, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Maybe more specifically, we could put it this way, what has God done in Christ on the cross? That's the, that's the gospel, and that has ramifications for all of life. It's the most important thing in the world, is the answer to that question. The second question, then, that flows from that question, then, is... How has he called us to live together as God's people? How are we now, as God's people, being made alive, saved from our sin, how are we now to actually live together as this thing called the church? It's this issue of community. We're, we're not just saved to be sort of individual silos that have our eternal destiny secure, and then we kind of go about doing whatever else we were doing before we got convicted by that one message and became Christians. We're, we're grafted into a family. And then the third question is, is that we're not just saved to be part of a family, but then that family, that community, has something that, that God wants them to do, and that is the question of mission. What has He called us to do together? He has put us here for a purpose that goes far beyond our, our own comfort and our own sort of functional, better lives. And that's this idea of the mission that God has for us as a church and for us as an individual. So we're just going to work our way through those three questions. Well, let me pray and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for these friends here today. I'm very grateful to be part of this church, very grateful to, uh, very grateful to have the privilege to serve them as one of their pastors. Very grateful for the brothers that you have given uh, as a team to serve with Reynolds and Don and Will and Paul and Wayne and Robert. Very grateful, Lord, for your kind providence in these past six years in spite of my naivete and arrogance and pride and insecurity. You have been kind to us. I pray now as we're in between our series in 1 Corinthians and Ruth that you, would, that you would make this Sunday not just a filler in between our Ruth series, but 
that you would recalibrate us on the gospel and all of its implications, that you would inform people that are here for the first or second or third time trying to figure out what we're all about. And Lord, for people that would be in this room today that are not yet believers in Jesus, that even as we talk about what it means to be a local church on mission, that you would open their eyes to the glorious goodness of the gospel, to the treasure that is Jesus. And they would fall in love with him. And that they would turn from their sin and trusting in themselves. And they would repent and believe in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would do this today for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first question that I want us to think about as our philosophy of ministry here at Crosspoint is this first question of who is Jesus? And what has God done in Christ on the cross? Who is Jesus? Well, we could spend all day, we could spend months plumbing the depths of the gospel, but let me just read a scripture from Mark chapter 1, the beginning chapter of Mark's gospel, where Jesus, his first recorded words in that gospel says in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, as he begins his public ministry, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the first recorded words that we have coming out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel of Mark is to repent and believe in the good news of the gospel. And then the rest of the gospels, in fact, the rest of the New Testament is, is dedicated to expanding on what Jesus has done, what this gospel is. But central to this message of Christianity and central to this message of the gospel is this idea that we must turn from our sins, turn from our self-righteousness. That's what the word repent means. And put our trust, belief, faith in what Jesus has done. So very simply, it's turning from our own work and turning to trust in Jesus' work on the cross. Maybe one of the most helpful passages in the entire New Testament to thoroughly explain the gospel is found in Ephesians chapter 2. So if, you're, if you have a Bible and you're flipping around, go to Ephesians. It's one of Paul's epistles to the right of the gospels. It'll be up on the screen here in just a moment if, if you don't have a Bible with you. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible in front of you in the chair rack below you. And you're welcome to keep that Bible if you don't have a Bible with you. You can take that with you. Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle Paul writes this. Some of the most important and most clarifying words of the message of Christianity in the entire Bible are found in these few verses in Ephesians 2. Paul writes this. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's not writing to a specific group of people. He's writing to all of us. This is a letter that was written to the church at Ephesus, but it made it in the Bible for an all-time purpose. This is, this is true about everybody. He's saying that sin... Our rebellion, whether that is sort of blatant public sin or whether that is trusting in ourselves and our own goodness instead of God's sufficiency, it is sin which produces spiritual death and separation from God. And he says we all walk in this, following the course of this world. In verse 3, look at there, it says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, this is a really important 
fundamental point in understanding the gospel well because I think probably most people understand that they've done bad things or maybe their life isn't what it should be or they have sinned, although they might not use that biblical word. But what a lot of people, even people that would consider themselves Christians, don't understand is the consequences for that sin. And clearly Paul writes to us here that this sin has consequences, this turning from God to trust in ourselves, whether it is sort of a, 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 a sin that gets, you know, uh, kind of a billboard like, you know, one of the seven deadly sins, murder, lust, uh, covetousness, or whether it is a sort of inward trusting and self-righteousness and idolatry, all of it separates us from God and in fact spiritually kills us and puts us, and this is not something that we talk about much in America, in the American church, but it makes us under God's judgment and wrath. And we are literally by nature, because of our rebellion, because we are just children of Adam and Eve, because we are human beings, because we have this nature and because we have all made this willful choice, we are under God's righteous judgment and wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 5 then says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We sang about it earlier this morning. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this is a beautiful description of how people become Christians. This is how, if you're a Christian, you became a Christian. You were dead in your sin, whatever that was, whatever flavor that took in your life, whether it was sort of good little church kid sin, or whether it was, you know, convicted felon sin, or whether it was probably a mix of the two, which is about where I landed in my life. We, we, we all are by nature children of wrath. And we, as a consequence, are spiritually unable to save ourselves. We're dead. We're on the emergency room table and there's a flat line on the spiritual monitor. And when God decides to make a person a Christian, he actually, he doesn't, he doesn't expect that dead corpse to improve themselves. He sends the glorious news of the gospel which I'll explain a little bit more fully in a second, and the life-giving power of that message hits the dead heart and actually brings it back to life. And that, that message, that truth, that gospel carries with it life and faith and repentance. So the very thing that Jesus that we read said you must do in Mark chapter 1, you must repent and believe, that comes with the gospel message when God hits a heart with it and it brings life to it. And that dead heart comes alive having been given the gift of repentance and saving faith and it comes up from the table and the first breath of that newly resurrected life is turning away from sin and trust in Jesus, which is called faith. <laughs> 
That's how you became a Christian if you're a Christian. And that is, that is glorious news. So does God just do that because he's good and gracious? Well, yes. But now how does he do that? He doesn't just sort of brush over our sin. What he does with our sin and rebellion, because he's just and glorious and righteous, for those that he saves, instead of punishing them for their sins, he comes in the form of his son Jesus in the flesh. The Bible, New Testament, is about Jesus' life, and Jesus lives the perfect righteous life that we didn't live. So where we disobeyed, Jesus obeys, storing up righteousness, and becomes the perfect, acceptable God-man, fully God, fully man, and lays down his life willingly on the cross and offers a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so what happens on the cross is, is God doesn't just make us Christians because he you know, kind of just wants to and just sort of snaps his fingers. He makes Christians Christians by being satisfied through Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross and accepting that in our place. And so Jesus' work on the cross is what makes us Christians. It is where Jesus, it is where God can be satisfied in his righteousness, his holiness is maintained. And so the question then that we get back to who is Jesus? Jesus is now the perfect God man who died for our sins and who rose again in victory over our sin and is now commanding all of us, as we read in Mark chapter 1, to repent and believe. Friends, it doesn't get any more glorious than this, that we would be saved through no effort of our own by a holy and righteous, merciful God who is rich in mercy and makes rebellious, lost, dead sinners alive through his glorious grace. So there's a few things that we need to say about this gospel before we move on to looking at what it brings us into, which is God's community. The gospel is not just merely several steps on how you become a Christian. It's not just a prayer that you repeat. It's not just the beginning of the Christian life, but the core defining reality of all that a Christian is. It's all aspects of life and truth that flow from it as a response in light of this gospel truth. A helpful picture that we talk about here a lot is to see the gospel, this glorious good news of what God has done in Christ on the cross to save dead, rebellious sinners, is to look at it as a sort of hub of a wheel. It's the center of everything. It's the center of life. And every aspect of life, whether that's, be, that's finances or vocation or recreation or, or our sexuality or our marriages or whatever it is, everything, everything that exists flows out of this great glorious news of what God has done on the cross. So the Christian message is not, this is how you become a Christian, and now let's kind of move over into the other areas of kind of really what life is. It's this is what God has done for you on the cross, which then humbles us and makes the rest of our life a joyful response to him. That's why, friends, by, by the way, just as an aside, that's why we preach through the scriptures, because we want to view everything and everything that comes up in the scriptures through that lens. And that's why, if I could just offer a little critique of American church culture, that's why I think it's particularly dangerous when churches have a steady diet of topical message, messages like 
looking at like, uh, the issue of marriage and then the issue of finances and then the issue of you know, being a good person or whatever, what happens is then these sort of things that should flow from what God has done in Christ on the cross become untethered and become just sort of, they become just sort of morality. You know, be a good husband, be a good wife, spend your money wisely, which of course are all part of what God calls us to do. But they're only important in as much as they flow from the fact that we have been made alive and we've been given Christ's righteousness so that we can live for him. So I want to be a good husband because it reflects the gospel. I want to spend my money wisely because it reflects the gospel. I want to handle my body and my sexuality biblically because it reflects the gospel and becomes a display of his grace, not just because it's the moral thing to do. Here's a helpful short summary of, of, of uh, the gospel. I came across this a couple weeks ago by um, a, a pastor in Kentucky whose blog I follow, and I thought it was a very help, helpful short summary. You can put it up on the screen. It's four statements that I think summarize the gospel well. The first is just the message of the law of God. You must do it. God is holy. We are not. And certainly much of the Bible is God's command on how we should live. You, you must, there are things we must do. God has clearly called us in his word to do it. But understanding the gospel well should also bring us to that second statement, which is we realize that we can't do it. We can't really uphold the law of God. Maybe some of them we can, and don't we tend to sort of highlight the things that we can do well, and we look down the end of our nose at people that can't do the things that we do well, and we minimize the things that are our weak spots, and you know, we kind of hide them, and, and then we're kind of you know, jealous of people who are better in those areas. I mean, it's just, we all have that. We all have fig leaves that we hide ourselves with. But friends, I mean, any, any spiritual honesty at all, whether you're a Christian or not, I think you'll realize that, that there's just things that we cannot achieve we, we all are broken. So that's, that's the second thing there. You can't do it. But then the message of the gospel that we read in Ephesians 2 is that Christ has done it. Remember we read in Ephesians 2 where it says God made us alive through Jesus' work on the cross. And so God isn't just beating us down saying, why are you acting that way? Why do you keep falling into that sin habit? If you would break this, then I can accept you. Now, that's not the message of Christianity if you grew up in that. that was, that's a wrong interpretation of what the gospel is. The gospel is, is that you can't do this, but Christ has done it. He has lived perfectly. He has fulfilled God's righteous requirements, and now, in Christ, you can do it. You can do it not because you look at Jesus merely as an example and we say, oh, well, Jesus did it. Now I need to muster enough faith. No, remember what we read in Ephesians 2, the heart of the gospel, is is that God, when he saves a person, he gives them the very thing that he requires of them, which is repentance and faith, and he he indwells their life. He brings them back to life, and he dwells in them, and he gives them the character of Christ so that now... Not in perfection, but in sanctification and progressive growth, they can now begin to live like he calls them to live. We all sort of inherently sense that we must do it. I think we we get that, whatever our varying moral standard may be. And And I think we all deep down sense that we can't do it. But friends, the heart of the gospel is that third line there that Christ has done it. That's what the gospel is. Christ has done it. Friends, do you see that? Have you trusted in that? Friends, this is what it means to be a Christian. At its core, what it means to be a Christian is 
to trust in Christ's work over your own. Put, to put your hope for your right standing before your creator in what Jesus has done for you. And realize that that trust and that righteousness makes you alive. God's sovereign grace makes you alive. He gives you those gifts. And now he gives you his character. He gives you his Holy Spirit to live in us. And now we are empowered to, in Christ, live the life that he calls us to live. Of course, we, won't, we don't do that perfectly, but we live that in progressive sanctification as we grow in Christ. Let me just ask you a question right now. What, what are you trusting in for your right standing with God? I mean, I venture to say that you're here at church this morning. Even if you're not yet a Christian, you, you probably sort of are at least willing to admit that there's a creator. What are you trusting in for that meeting to go well when you stand before him someday? <laughs> the glorious news of the gospel is, is that you should trust in something outside of yourself. I mean, the very fact that you're here today, I think, signals the fact that you realize that you're not able, you need something outside of yourself to inform that meeting to go well. And the glorious message of Christianity is that that has been accomplished for us, and he gives us the very ability to see that so that we might trust in him. And here's one final point, friends. Just, just as you read the scriptures, this might be helpful to you as you're maybe dealing with Christian friends or friends that are not Christians, because they'll, they'll look at a portion of the Bible and it'll seem like God is telling us to do these things. And those are some of the verses in the Bibles that kind of jump out to people when God says, do this and don't do this. And it's kind of like, ah, oh, Christianity is just a set of rules or I can't handle religion. Friends, when you read the Bible, you really, have to, you really have to learn to distinguish between two types of speech. One type of speech is, I'm getting into my mom's territory here. She's an English literature teacher, old retired teacher, and I'd always get nervous talking around her because I would make bad grammar choices and... Um, so, Mom, if you're listening to this by podcast, if I make any mistakes here in this, please forgive me. Um, anyway, but you should, you should, you should learn to, to distinguish between indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives, I know, we don't say that word much, and imperatives, I'll explain. An indicative is a, a part of speech where it just says, this is what has happened. I walked into the room, right? It's happened. It's an objective act. It's, it, it's, it's, it's happened. It's, it's a verb that's happened right? Indicative. And then there's imperatives. You should do this, all right? The message of the scriptures are really divided between indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives, what Jesus has done, and then what we must do as a response to that, okay? So for example, go to Colossians. Go to Colossians. You got to see this. Colossians, just a couple books over from Ephesians. Look at, look at, look at the indicatives and imperatives in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see this. This is really important. If you've been a Christian for a long time and you kind of grew up in a Christian church culture where the word gospel, it, it just kind of lost its power and you're wondering, why is this pastor talking about the gospel so much, friends? I mean, don't we, we all kind of know that? No, we don't. We don't know the gospel well. We, we need to hear it again and again and again. And understanding these two categories of biblical speech will help you understand the message of the gospel better. So here's an indicative, okay? Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. It says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, again, that's all of us, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus did it. It's done. It's indicative, right? So it didn't say, friends, notice here, notice the accent of the verb. It doesn't say, you who are evil, who 
eventually started going to, you know, Colossians First Baptist Church there and started to improve yourself, then Christ accepted based on sort of your improvement. <laughs> That's not what it says. It said, Jesus made you alive. He has reconciled. And then, then go to Colossians 2. Reynolds read it this morning in, in, in Colossians 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses, verse 13, Colossians 2, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That, that's past tense. God did it. Do you see that? Dead people don't do anything but stay dead. Amen. Dead people can't, they can't act on a command. And the heart of the gospel is, is that Jesus has acted on that command on behalf of the dead sinner. That's the indicative of the gospel. You were dead in your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So remember when we look at that four statements, you must do it, this, this law, God has nailed that to the cross through Jesus' work on the Christ, not because he set it aside and said, ah, that didn't really work out. No, Jesus fulfilled it, and now he imputes, he gives us his obedience, he gives us his righteousness. And that's it. God has done it. Okay, that's indicative. Now, from that flows the imperatives of Scripture, which is now because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because of the gift of faith and repentance that he has given you in his kind grace as God and has made you alive through no effort of your own and through the life of the Holy Spirit that he now gives in you, now, resurrected sinner, you are now able to, in grace, by the Holy Spirit, live out the commands of Scripture, which now we see in Colossians chapter 3. Look at Colossians 3, verse 1. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if he made you alive by giving you the gospel gift of faith and repentance through no merit of your own, brought you to life by his glorious gospel, now you can live out to some degree in ever-increasing Christ-likeness, these imperatives are command of scriptures. You can now seek the things that are above. You can now go down to verse 13. It says, bear with one another if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so do you see now that if you read the Bible and you see only the imperatives, do you see how that can drive you into religious anguish and futility that's the mistake that so many people make they look at the bible and say oh it's just a stack of rules that i can't obey yes that's the point but you don't see the indicatives you don't see that these imperatives are given to drive us to futility so that we throw our hands up and say god i can't do it only you can do it and then he gives us the gift of faith and repentance whereby he makes us alive in him thereby giving us his character and his holy spirit whereby now we can live out the imperatives of the scriptures do you see that friends that's the gospel. And from that flows everything. So what are you trusting for? Trusting in for your right standing between you and God? Oh, friends, if you're trusting in yourself or if that's the first time you heard the gospel described that way, count that a kindness and turn away from yourself even now. You don't need to repeat a prayer, fill out a card or join a church. All of that comes later and are things that you probably should do. But right now, turn from yourself. Turn even now and trust in Jesus. If you're seeing this for the first time, friends, I think that could be very 
strong evidence that God is even now, even as I'm speaking, giving you the gifts of repentance and faith. Turn away from yourself and trust in Jesus. Do you see him right now? Look to him. Look to him in your heart and your mind's eye and see the kind and gracious resurrected Savior who bore God's justice for you and who even now is calling you to repent and believe. Do it even now. Right now, friends. Turn and trust in Jesus. When God does that now, it makes a person a Christian. It brings us to the second question, which is the question of community. And I'll move through these next two questions. I was about to say quicker, but you know, guys, I don't even pay attention to the clock. I just halfway through the message, I think, oh, that was a long point. Maybe I should speed it up, but then I forget that, so whatever. I'm sorry. That's just, that's just the way I'm wired. All right, how should we live together as... I just didn't want to make any false promises, I guess is what I was saying there. Um, how should we now live together as God's people? This is the question of community. Now then, God, when he saves a person, he puts that person into his community. The language that we read about in 1 Corinthians when we were working through 1 Corinthians was from 1 Corinthians 12 was that he, he puts us in a body. Remember? He says, how can a hand say that I don't need the foot? Or how can an eye say that I don't need the ear? And so when you become a Christian by God's good grace, he doesn't just sort of leave you alone as an individual sort of silo. He grafts you into his family, into his people, and now we become part of this body of Christ. Look at Ephesians, back to Ephesians chapter 2. I didn't put this, uh, I didn't give you this, uh, mess- this, this scripture, Christy, but if you can put up Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. This is a picture of what God does when he saves a person. He puts them into, he grafts them in, he makes them part of the family of God. It says in Ephesians 2, verse 19, so then you're no longer a stranger, an alien. You're no longer lost in your sin. You're no longer an individual, but you are a fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so he takes an individual who is rebellious and lost and far from God. He moves on their heart with the kind gifts of repentance and faith. He makes them alive. And now he, he grafts that digit, that hand wandering off, that little toe running off in the desert of selfishness, and he, he sews it back on to the body of Christ where it was intended to be. And he makes us part of the community of the house and temple of the Lord. And so then our life as individual Christians are to be lived out within the context of community. Friends, that's why, just as an aside, Reynolds uh, phrased it so well. We're not trying to chase it down and trying to grow this church. Man, we're not on a church growth plan. We don't, have, we don't have strategies. We don't have consultants. We know nobody from Atlanta that's part of some church consulting. We don't have any of that, none of that junk. That's just silliness. That's just American church culture silliness. We don't have any projections. We're just going to preach the gospel, eventually die, be forgotten, and make much of Jesus. That's our plan, all right? That's our plan. Yeah, no, I mean, we're not, we don't have, we're not, no, no, a little bit more. We're not, we don't have any capital campaigns. We're not going to have thermometers on the stage. We're not going to have rich, we're going to have chicken dinners for rich people, or nothing like that. If we need to raise a bunch of money, we don't have any of that, okay? I don't even know the point I was making. I just got on a little angst to run there. This is a way, Mary, what was I talking about? But, 
But the point is, is he, he puts us now as a people together. And now we have a, a mission to do. We, we, have, we have a life to live together. I'm getting ahead of myself. We have a life to live together. And so, so now we have some imperatives in our life as to how we are supposed to live together. And here's our goal, is to become a sort of visible embodiment, a, a fleshly sort of on earth representation of this message, this gospel, this glorious news of what God has done in Christ. So together, as, as a group of pardoned rebels who are still struggling with sin, as we come together you know, in grace and sanctification, we then become a sort of object lesson, a sort of display to an onlooking world of, of, of the gospel itself. In fact, that's what one of my mentors, Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., says in his good little book, What is a Healthy Church? He says that, that the church is the gospel made visible. It's the community of God's people where we are simultaneously encouraged and where we simultaneously serve as a witness to a lost world so that they would taste and see that God is good. So how do we pursue biblical community at Crosspoint? Well, I see four primary ways, just very quickly, four primary ways that we pursue and are striving to live out, not in perfection. I mean, we need a lot of work in these areas and every year, but we are striving to live out biblical community at Crosspoint. First is when we gather together. I mean, I know it's a large room. I know there are several hundred people in here. I know that you can't possibly know everybody, or even if you could know everybody, you couldn't possibly have a deep relationship with them. But friends, even when we gather, we are saying something about God. Friends, that's why it's so important for us to sing heartily, even if it's not your style of music. That's why it's important for us to come ready to worship God because collectively we become, when we gather as God's people, a sort of showcase of the goodness of God. And I'm not trying to get sort of crazy spiritual here, but friends, do you realize that when we gather together as the people of God in sincerity and humility and earnestness, there is something special about the corporate gathering of God's people when they sing to Jesus, when they read Jesus' word, and when they respond to Jesus that effect, is a certain power to that gathering that God in his providence uses to soften the heart of unbelievers who are present. So friends, what we're doing here has more dimensions than just us going to church. It has a sort of witness. It has a heart-softening evangelistic fervor to it. That's why we should sing. That's why we should have our Bibles open on our laps. And that's why we should lean forward in the foxhole because somebody around us may be pricked in their heart by your example, by the Holy Spirit, to see that all oh, this is real and God has moved on their hearts, friends. So the first way that we pursue biblical community even is how we gather together. Now, of course, as a growing church, we're wrestling with the challenges of that. We started out with just 15, 20, 30 folks. We all knew each other intimately. And some of you that were around at that time, I realize you're wrestling with, uh, you're excited, I guess, I hope, about the growth of the church. But every now and then I'm going to hear, well, I don't know anybody that's changed. Well, you're, you're right, it's changed. Home slice. We're not meant to stay the same. Let's go. We got a mission, which we'll talk about here in a second. And so we have to adjust our expectations about what it means to be connected in a church of five, six hundred people, you're not necessarily going to be vitally connected with everybody. And that's okay because there's something bigger going on than just our personal comfort and coziness. Do you see that? 
which is the mission of God, which we'll get to in just a second. So the first primary way we pursue biblical community is when we gather. The second is through life point groups. Friends, again, this is an area where we need help. If you call Crosspoint home and you have not made an earnest effort to connect through life point groups, I would encourage you to, to do that. I realize life is busy. I realize that our growth as a church has maybe outpaced the number of available life point groups. But maybe if you're a member at Crosspoint, and you know, this might even serve as a sort of motivation for you to consider serving, getting outside of yourself and being trained as a life point group leader for next semester. I realize there's awkwardness. I realize there's busy schedules. But friends, but friends, is that, you know, is that just, is, are we just going to push away at that resistance, at some of those obstacles that are part of our modern age of busyness and, you know, difficulty of connecting? Are we just going to push away and say, ah, you know, I just can't do it. I'm just going to check the box, go to church, be faithful, show up, be an usher, work in the nursery. I'm just going to kind of stay skin deep. Or are we going to humbly, earnestly, really try and pursue biblical community through LifePoint groups. Friends, if you're not part of a LifePoint group, I encourage you. I realize it doesn't always work out. It's not feasible for every season of life. Friends, I would implore you, that's where we do life. That's where the gospel is sort of lived out. That's where you're prayed for. That's where you're cared for. That's where you're encouraged. That's where you encourage others. That's where our spiritual gifts are primarily exercised, in those venues. Thirdly, Another way we're trying to pursue biblical community is through one-on-one discipleship relationships. One-on-one discipling relationships. A couple times this summer we had some uh, training of disciples and what we're trying to do is really kind of form a sort of grassroots movement and cross point where uh, older men just sort of grab younger men and older women grab younger women and just sort of pour out the Christ that's in them. And it's not a program where we got people signing up on a clipboard in the foyer, all those things. Churches, we can get, we can, man, we can overprogram stuff. We can kill stuff with organization. But there's just this sort of imperative biblical mandate to just be a person who, if you've been a Christian for six months, find somebody who's been a Christian for two months and tell them the four months you got on. Hey, man, this is what I've learned last four months. If you've been a Christian for 40 years and all you're doing is hanging around other Christians who have been Christians for 40 years, come on, get outside of yourself and look at a young man who might need just lunch one day so that he can figure out which way is up and how to set his alarm and show up at work on time. All of that is discipleship, and we need, we need those discipling relationships. And then fourthly, just the informality of relationships that happen in church life. Show up at stuff. Be places, man. We've got a young couple that just moved here, uh, and I've met them. They came here about a month ago, and I feel like they're already part of the life of the church because they just started showing up. They're just hanging around. They're here early. They kind of leave a little late. We had a class or something. They were there. I'm like, hey, what's your name? I don't even know you. It was like their first Sunday, and they came to some LifePoint leader training or discipling class realizing that, you know, hey, I'm going to just figure these cats out. I know these people now. Just sort of hang around. Hang around. Let your heart sort of be stirred and connected to the body of Christ. Here's a question before we move on to the third and final aspect of this. Is have you made biblical, just a question for you. Have you made biblical community in the context of the local church a high priority in your life? If not, friends, can I tell you, can I encourage you, can I exhort you that you are depriving yourself of one of the primary means of God's sanctifying grace? Are there obstacles? Yes. Is there awkwardness? Yes. Is it a challenge? Yes. But I would... I would pastorally, gently, but 
strongly encourage you to prioritize biblical community. All right, question number three then is, if God has saved us through Jesus' work on the cross, that's the gospel, and then he's grafted us into the family of God called the church, then what has he called us to do as a people? What has he called us to do as a people? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I know we spent about half a year in 1 Corinthians. Let me just reread 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. This is Paul's heart for the mission of God, the heart for the advance of the good news of Jesus, his heart for people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, his heart for the mission of God, which is to save more lost sinners like he used to be, his heart for the advancement of that message. There's much more we could say about these verses, but I'll just limit it to reading it. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And that winning is in the context of causing them to trust in Jesus. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. So what he's saying is, around the Jews, I acted this particular way, not, um, not compromising the gospel at all, but kind of, you know, trying to minimize the distractions so that they could come to faith in Jesus. And then verse 21, he says, to those outside the law, which is everybody other than Jews, I became as one outside the law, not amplifying his Jewishness, so that it wouldn't be an obstacle for these Gentiles, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So if we could kind of adapt this to, to modern day language, to a non-Christian, I didn't church, talk church speak, you know? I, I, I didn't amplify some things that they might not understand and add it on to what it means to be a Christian so as to be an obstacle to them. And around the Christians, uh, which in that context, uh, he's talking about Jews, around the people of God, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't um, really display my freedom that might be sort of an aggravating thing for them. I, I focused on the gospel so that these Jews, these religious people, and these Gentiles, these non-religious people would not be tripped up by obstacles and they could trust in Jesus. And what Paul is advocating here is that this church, this Corinthian church, be a church that doesn't just become Christians, then join a sort of little fraternity, and then sort of hole up in some bunker and sort of create an us versus them mentality and never really be used by God to affect and be the means of God reaching other people with the gospel. What Paul is advocating here is that a church, the people of God, the local church, the church at Corinth, the church at Cross Point, the church at First Baptist downtown, Christ Community, First Methodist, I don't even know if we have a First Methodist, but we probably do. St. Luke, uh, every other church, should be a church that has been seized and gripped by this gospel, that has put them together, and now this gospel, this truth of what God has done on the cross through Jesus, now compels this group of humble, gracious, pardoned rebels to now spread as little lights in a dark world the good news of Jesus so that in God's kind providence, he might use us as carriers of that gospel message that brings life to dead hearts on the emergency room table. And that's the question of what has God called us to do is to be a church on mission. Let me just give you some characteristic traits, and I'll end with this. Marks of a church that is not on mission. Marks of a church that is 
not on mission. The word mission itself is merely something that is funded. We send money away to people in faraway lands to do that work. That's the mark of a church that's not on mission. Another mark of a church that's not on mission is a majority of the organizational energy is spent on keeping current members happy and content. Good things like Bible study and prayer are viewed mostly, if not exclusively, as personal spiritual disciplines for self-improvement rather than learning more about Jesus so that we might be better witnesses for him in our everyday lives. Another mark of a church not on mission is that vocational staff are seen as dispensers of religious goods there to serve the religious needs of the congregation. A sort of us versus them mindset exists that serves to subtly isolate Christians in a bunker mentality where the main objective of the Christian life is to avoid the spiritual contamination of the world. Now friends, of course we want to avoid sin, but so often in church culture we just sort of hunker down and talk about the world as if it's this faraway place that we cannot stand. And what happens then is the very, the very, the very antibiotic, the gospel grace that's in these people that is the only thing that can save this contaminated world stays isolated in this little foxhole an enclave of self-obsessed Christianity. Empty religious catchphrases, another mark of a church not on mission, empty religious catchphrases, stylized prayers, and unnecessary over-spiritualized jargon dominates their culture and speak. Non-Christians, if present at all at the worship gathering, would likely find the service hard to follow and not applicable to their lives and the world as they know it. A sense of competitiveness with other churches in the area usually rests underneath the culture of the church. Growing churches that are close by are viewed with envy and suspicion. And finally, a mark here. This is just a, a brainstorm from an article that I read by Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City that I respect so much. Final mark here that I just brainstorm on a church that is not on mission is that evangelistic efforts are usually event-based and or centered around some organized or staff or leader-led program of outreach. Not disparaging those things, but that's like evangelism is some program or thing or event that we do, not a lifestyle. Contrast that now with a few statements about uh, marks of a church on mission. The marks of a church on mission that I believe clearly the scriptures call us to be. A mark of a church on mission is that the gospel, which we just unpacked, hopefully you understood well, is the gospel is central to the preaching and the life of the church. It's tethered to everything we do. It's not just seen as the beginning point of Christianity. Oh, now let's talk about marriage. Oh, let's talk about wise financial stewardship. Oh, let's talk about this. No, it's central. It's the hub of everything. Everything is a spoke coming off of the gospel. Members see their individual lives as connected to the mission of God. There's this sort of joyful humility. That, hey, my life is not what I should be, but God can use me in my individual circumstance to be a witness for Jesus. Members seek to leverage their relationships as opportunities to communicate the gospel and point people to Christ. Evan evangelism is primarily seen as the relational opportunity of all Christians, not a program-driven effort of a few. Groups and gatherings of the church are non-threatening places for non-Christians to come and see the gospel taught in understandable and relevant ways that connect to real life. Now let me stop here and say, friends, I'm not advocating dumbing down Christianity or the message of the gospel or pragmatism. That's not what we do here, in fact. We don't sort of create a sort of secret 
sensitive environment, hoping that people will sort of fall in love with our slickness, and then we take them back to this little back room and then explain the, the faith, really. Friends, I think, I think that silly movement that started in the late 70s, early 80s, and 90s has gripped a lot of churches in America is really just silliness. I mean, it would be kind of like this. I, I got this example from Matt Chandler, this pastor out in Texas that I really respect. He says it'd be like if you were trying to get somebody to understand and love marriage and want to be married. It'd be like a husband and wife sort of, sort of keeping each other at arm's length. Like, oh yeah, well, uh, you know, well, marriage is, is pretty good. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's got its advantages and, you know, it's very helpful and it's pretty slick and, you know, you know the, well, we get to share, we get to file income tax together. That's a good reduction. You know, kind of all these functional, pragmatic ways as to how marriage can help you live a better life. And so I guess for some people, like, oh yeah, I guess it's helpful. Maybe I'll get married. As opposed to just living passionately in love for one another and just serving each other. I mean, humbly being real about it and saying, oh, I love my wife. I mean, which would be more attractive, right? And I think the air of the seeker-sensitive movement is that they dumb down the message of Christianity hoping that people will kind of be attracted to the functionality of the benefits of Christianity when, friends, that's not the message of the Bible, The message of the Bible is that we're hopelessly lost and God in his extravagant love has saved you in spite of yourself and now that should produce love in you. And so what it means to be a Christian is not functionality or your best life now or some purpose-driven silliness. It's about falling in love with Jesus who is better. He's better, friends, in this world. He's better than anything else. He's better and the life he gives is better. So living with your spouse is better. Being a Christian in love with your wife is better than premarital sex. Spending your love, your money on God's purpose is better than buying silly stupid stuff for yourself. It's better friends. It's better. Now what's more attractive? Functionality or love emanating from grace? Christians are encouraged in a missional church to wisely enter their culture as missionary lights that just have been consumed by the love of Jesus and are equipped and encouraged to in humility and grace just be little missionary lights in the workplace in the platoon, in the battalion, in the home, in the school, realizing that it's God who makes people trust in him, not us. He just uses our little meager lives as means to open a heart up to the gospel. Are we on mission as a church? Are you striving to be on mission as a follower of Jesus? Well, friends, I hope that this has helped you understand the heart of what we want Crosspoint to be. We want to be people that understand the gospel well. And we want the gospel to have a deep impact on our lives so we would love each other, lay, lay down our lives for each other. That we would create here a community that we all long to be a part of but that we wouldn't be sort of incessant or incestuous little self-absorbed enclave, that we would be a sort of missional force 
so that the grace that has hit our hearts would hit others as God uses us in his kindness. Now let me pray. Lord, as we now respond to these words and spend a few moments worshiping you, Lord, I'm certain that there are people in this room who that gospel news, that ultimate reality of what God, you, the Father, have done in Jesus on the cross, I, I'm certain, I'm very, very sure that there's a high likelihood that there are people in this room who have never really embraced that as the ultimate reality and truth and joy of their lives. God, would you do that right now? Would you cause my friend who may be in here who has never trusted in you, regardless of they grew up in church or regardless of whether they felt like this building was going to fall in on them when they came into a church, wherever they are, God, would you give them the gift of repentance and faith so that they would turn from their sin, turn from their self-righteousness, and turn and trust in Jesus and his work. Would you do that? Father, would you please do that? And friend, if that's you right now, you just look to Christ. Speak to him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Tell him that you're trusting in him and not in yourself. Tell him that you believe in him. Tell him that you're trusting in him. Even now, just right now, look to Jesus. You don't need to be coached in that. You don't need, a, you don't need something to repeat. Just believe in Jesus. Look to him. Love him. Gaze, gaze into his beauty. Father, for the rest of us that are already Christians, would you stir our hearts? How would you humble us? Would you make us fall in love with the gospel afresh? And, and would you make us fall in love with the people that the gospel grafts us into, which is the local church? And then, Lord, would you make us fall in love again with the, the mission? being used by you to be a sort of display of this gospel in our everyday little lives. Would you do that? And God, for the person who's bought into the lie that that is somehow joyless, God, would you, would you unwind that lie? There's nothing more satisfying than living this way that you call us to. There's nothing more pleasurable than living this way. So God, would you... Would you satisfy our hearts with that, I pray, as we respond to you now in Jesus' name.